Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you very much. Um, it's an honor uh, to be here on this uh, very beautiful campus that I had the opportunity to explore uh, for the last for the past week or so. And it's been a pleasure getting to know uh, you um, and your students. <clears throat> now, uh, let me begin with a question. Do you think you can know yourself or are you a skeptic about the possibility of knowledge? So, here is the uh, Temple of uh, Apollo at Delphi. As you may know, uh, the temple is famous for the um, uh, maxim or the ditto on the frontispiece uh, of the temple, at the entrance of the temple, notai suton, know thyself. Um, this maxim was uh, the maxim that Socrates often invoked uh, when he urged his fellow Athenian citizens that the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, it is the question I wish to pursue here tonight. But I wish to pursue this question in a comparative fashion. And I want to draw your attention to another important maxim. Here is, of course, the figure of the historical Buddha. The Buddha, too, much like Socrates, urged his followers. And he urged them to be a lamp unto yourself. Atta Dipa. With no one else as your refuge. Thus urges indeed the Buddha uh, in a dialogue uh, uh, with um, Ananda, his most famous disciple. Ananda, following Buddha's recovery from an illness close to the end of his life, um, questioned the Buddha who should uh, uh, carry on his, his uh, teachings after his death. Uh, instead of appointing a follower, the Buddha simply uh, and famously instructs his disciples, his followers, to use their own reasoned deliberations um, uh, and their culti mental, mental cultivation, in short, to go uh, by, own, by their own guiding light. So, the Buddha and Socrates. <clears throat> now, given Socrates' philosophical legacy in the West and Buddhism's Pan-Asian reach, it would not be an, ex an exaggeration to say that these two calls to self-scrutiny have shaped most of uh, philosophy's abstract ideals of self-knowledge. But what do they mean for us today, when the natural and mind sciences are the preferred way to obtain knowledge about ourselves? And, and more importantly, what does philosophy uh, where the ideal of a life in the service of this pursuit first originated, has to offer that can still be of interest. As Professor Silverstein noted last week when he introduced my colleague, um, Sheridan Huff, our public lectures <clears throat> were conceived to be complementary. Last week, you were urged, for those of you who um, had attended the lecture, last week you were urged to consider just how much your metaphysical commitments matter to what you take yourself to be and to be capable of. You're asked 
in a metaphysical fashion, to consider whether the self, yourself, is discovered or made. This evening, I invite you to consider in an epistemological fashion um, what is it I like you to consider in an epistemological fashion um, whether self-knowledge is attainable or beyond or beyond our grasp. Though, of course, the mention of virtues in the title of my talk should give you some clue as to the case I'll be making here tonight. So, what is it to know oneself? It is instructive that as we try to answer this question, we are inevitably uh, brought not to answers, but to further questions. We may wonder, for instance, whether we know ourselves in a special way that is different from the way we know others and external objects or the external world. That is, we may wonder whether the intimate ways in which we, our perceptions, thoughts, and desires are may manifest uh, in us suggest that we are in a unique, perhaps privileged position to describe and understand them. Thus, we may wonder whether self-knowledge uh, is different than other kinds of knowledge of external objects or, or the external world. As we pursue this question even further, we may end up asking yet another question. Is self-knowledge the same as knowledge of a self, or is it a distinctive feature uh, or faculty of the mind? That we're able to entertain um, these questions shows not only that we are doubtful about the best ways to know ourselves, but even about what it is that we are actually seeking. Despite these uncertainties, at some level, of course, we do have a certain basic sense of what self-knowledge involves. We may, and often do, um, think of it as discovering some unknown fact about ourselves. Perhaps a particular character flaw, uh, or a unique talent, like, say, an operatic voice, or an aptitude for math that we did not know we possessed until we took voice lessons or signed up for an advanced calculus class. Or we may think that to really get to know ourselves, we need to go on a journey of self-discovery, uh, a pilgrimage to a sacred site or a backpacking trip around the world. In all these instances, we are called to pause, to take stock, to reflect, if only for a moment, on just what it is that we are doing with our lives. The more pragmatic and common sense types among ourselves may take things at face value and think that the self-knowledge project, as Socrates conceived it, is just too elusive. And in any case, too indulgent a pursuit to squander one's precious time on. One has got to make a living, and self-knowledge, whatever philosophers and their admirers may think, is not something that pays the bills. And yet, uh, as Socrates would have us believe, the Delphic maxim is not about the reach of our knowledge, but about its limitations. As he famously put it in the Apology, I thought to myself, 
I am wiser than this man. Neither of us knows anything that is really worth knowing. But he thinks that he has knowledge while he has not. While I, having no knowledge, do not think that I have. I do not think that I know what I do not know. What Socrates disavows here is that he knows um, anything worthwhile. Is that he knows anything worthwhile. The Greek is kalon kagaton, from kalos, beautiful, and, or noble, and agathos, good. Unlike politicians and craftsmen, says Socrates, who, because they have knowledge of their craft, think themselves wise, he, Socrates, does not think he knows what he does not know. This all sounds rather paradoxical, doesn't it? Should we conclude that Socrates really knows where that he is actually ignorant? Here, as elsewhere, of course, Socrates is employing his well-known elenquis, the method of refutation, the sequence of questions and answers that always seem to end in aporia, uh, an unsolvable internal contradiction or logical distinction. It is this method that allows Socrates to discern an inconsistency in his beliefs and arrive at his conclusion that he does not know what he uh, does not know. So, says Socrates, if I say that it is impossible for me to keep quiet because that means disobeying the God, you will not believe me and will think I am being ironical. On the other hand, if I say that it is the greatest good for a man to discuss virtue every day and those other things about which you hear me conversing and testing myself about, and others, for the unexamined life is not worth living for a man, you will believe me even less. This statement, the unexamined life is not worth living um, perhaps one of Socrates' most famous statements, um, most famous and indeed most provocative, can easily inspire or indeed repel us with its frank, almost brutal honesty. But one thing it cannot do is leave us indeed indifferent. And yet, there is something important possibly demanding, and perhaps unrealistic as well, about his call. Are the lives of the vast majority of people really worthless because they lack the time uh, or the inclination to conduct themselves as Socrates did? What worth can the examined life have if only a handful of people can devote themselves to it? And precisely what it is that makes the examined life so valuable um, after all, that we, or at least those of us who can, should try and live it. Might the injunction, know thyself, be perhaps overrated? A piece of ancillary wisdom that is best left behind. After all, there are many interesting things to know. <clears throat> and why should self-knowledge be so special? More to the point... Isn't the case that we already know a great many things about ourselves, courtesy of, say, genomic sequencing, brain imaging, aptitude and personality testing, and other marvels of modern science and technology? Skepticism 
about the worth of the examined life, as Socrates conceived it, was as pervasive among his um, Athenian um, uh, friends and colleagues as it is today. But today it comes with a clever and professional twist. Take, for instance, this article that came out in Scientific American a few years back by the journalist uh, John Horgan, with its rather, indeed, unsettling conclusion, is self-knowledge overrated? Horgan identifies what he calls the Socratic principle of the idea that the examined life is the greatest good one could actually pursue. He thinks that far from being specific to the Socratic uh, tradition in Western philosophy, this principle underpins everything from Buddhism, uh, Confucianism, and Stoicism to psychoanalysis, cognitive behavioral therapy, and even evolutionary psychology. It is the rationale and the main driving force behind uh, psychotherapy, meditation, and the study of the humanities. Any intellectual inquiry that helps us become more ethical ought to, at least in principle, also make us better and happier persons. But, goes Horgan, going around and asking some prominent philosophers and scientists whether their sustained and systematic study of the mind has had an impact on their lives, he concludes that it has not. He asks David Chalmers, well-known philosopher of mind, whether his attempt to have a go at a so-called hard problem has made a difference to his life. And Chalmers is quoted as saying that his deep insights have really not made no difference. And he also cites a study by Eric Schwitzgebel, a philosopher at the University of California at Riverside, which is supposed to have shown that ethicists score no better than other academics on a range of ethical behaviors such as voting, Staying in touch with your mother. When is the last time you called your mother or your grandmother? Meat-eating, organ and blood donation, responsiveness to student emails. No, that's an, that's an important one. Charitable giving and talking towards someone's lecture. So far, so good. <laughs> More disconcerting still is the view that academics and professional philosophers in particular are just too self-absorbed and autistic to serve as good examples of what a virtuous life looks like. If there is anything very smart people are good at, says the neuroscientist uh, Christoph Koch, is self-deception. Because smart people are better at rationalizing their transgressions. Now, such anecdotal stories may fuel skepticism about the benefits of the examined life, but citing Freud's mendacity, Jung's psychosis, Wittgenstein's weirdness, uh, and Heidegger's fascism as reasons for casting doubt on the virtues of self-knowledge misses the point of the Socratic dictum, or so I claim. Lately, Doubt about the possibility of self-knowledge has found a new ally, Buddhism, with its famous doctrine of no self. As this brief uh, Eon uh, piece um, aired recently on the BBC uh, in the commanding voice of none other than Stephen Fry uh, makes the case, Socrates uh, believed self-knowledge was indeed essential. Today, we wonder if 
there is even a self to know. It would seem then that we confront a paradox when it comes to self-knowledge. On the one hand, we seem to have a basic sense of knowing who we are. Man, woman, father, sister, student, faculty administrator, spouse. On the other hand, we are uncertain about a great many things concerning our past choices, present circumstances, and future prospects. So, Socrates' critical mode of examination, the Elenchus, shows the elusive nature of self-knowledge. We seldom pause as we go about our daily life to think, who is this I that ponders, hopes, and plans for the future? Indeed, we may fail to know ourselves uh, in, argues Socrates, three important ways. Regarding our wealth, says Socrates, he may think himself richer than his property makes him. Regarding appearance, there are even more who think themselves taller and more handsome and physically finer in general than they really are and truly are. And regarding virtue, by, but by far the greatest number are mistaken as regards possessions of the soul. They think themselves superior in virtue when in fact they are not. So, we have traveled a long way since the self-assured Athenians became the dominant cultural, economic, and military force during the 5th century BCE. But given the volatility of our global financial system, casino capitalism, and inflated property markets, we may be forgiven for thinking that we are indeed richer um, than our property makes us. And it is hard to know anymore what vanity and narcissism mean in the era of the selfie. Even the Dalai Lama has trouble these days resisting the selfie, um, let alone taking the self out of it. Here he is with Miss Canada. So, um, but if it is the possessions of the soul that we should be most concerned about indeed getting wrong, how then do you go about finding out who you truly are and by what means? Fortunately for us, Socrates does give us an answer about how we should ultimately think about the Delphic Maxim. He does so in an exchange um, with Alcibiades, uh, in the eponymous uh, name Dialogue. Here's a brief exchange. Say Socrates to Alcibiades in the context of their discussion about friendship. I'll tell you what I suspect that inscription means, that know thyself inscription from the um, Temple of Delphi. There may not be many examples of it, except the case of sight. Then let's think of something that allows us to see both it and ourselves when we look at it. To which Alcibiades responds, obviously, Socrates, you mean mirrors and that sort of thing. Now, because, argues Socrates, when we look others in the eye, our face appears in them, like in a mirror, we can say that the eye sees itself when it observes another eye directly. 
So the argument goes, seeing is itself seen in this case. Seeing is a reflexive act. We can only know what we are looking at if we are self-aware. And since the eye cannot see another without seeing itself, reflexive perception provides the best analogy for self-knowledge. The most famous, so I should say rather, this most famous imagery explains not only how we should conceive of self-knowledge with Socrates and indeed Plato, but that self-knowledge is a dialogical process. And since we can only know ourselves if we are able to tell what does and what does not belong to us, knowing oneself is the same thing as being self-guarded enough to prevent assuming that one knows what one does not know. So only when we know ourselves reflexively can we tell that what belongs to us does indeed belong to us. This virtue of knowing reflexively is the first virtue of self-knowledge we have, so th we, we have thus far uncovered. Sound-mindedness, sophrosyne, a term that um, was very variously translated as moderation, but it combines uh, a way of uh, thinking uh, where excellence of character and practical wisdom are inextricably linked, for which Socrates, of course, provides the paradigmatic example. Of all the ancients, uh, it is the Stoics that would find inspiration and seek to emulate the Socratic way of life. As the Stoics would argue, the dialogical form of inquiry by means of which we get to know ourselves is written in a basic form of self-awareness common to humans and animals alike. By cross-examining our mental impressions, we find out what belongs to us, our opinions, judgments, and so on, and what is outside of our control, how others see us and think about us. It is by engaging in this dialogical process, first with others, and then eventually as an internal conversation with oneself, as Marcus Aurelius' meditations famously <clears throat> testify, that we get to know and to influence ourselves and others. Now, I want to turn to another key figure in the Western philosophical canon, well known for having uh, revived the Socratic tradition of self-inquiry. And you might have guessed that that's none other than <coughs> the French philosopher René Descartes. <coughs> Here's Descartes in his famous meditations. Some years ago, says Descartes, I was struck by the large number of falsehoods that I had accepted as true in my childhood and by the highly doubtful nature of the whole edifice <clears throat> that I had subsequently based on them. Descartes here faces um, a challenge that in many ways is still very much of us today. We grow up and into a system of beliefs, habits, and practices long before we come to reflect on them. Whether we come to question the beliefs and practices uh, we were groomed to uh, adopt depends on our upbringing, social circumstances, and of course, educational opportunities. A liberal arts education is still, by most measures, the best way to confront those big questions about the meaning of life. Although, if your undergraduates are as blasé and jaded as mine, 
our job might be more challenging still. <clears throat> so Descartes takes up the Socratic challenge. The path to self-knowledge goes via the recognition of our own epistemic failures. But he goes one step further. Ignorance does not simply reflect the limits of our knowledge. Rather, it reflects the false beliefs we form when we lack a systematic method of reasoning. So, <clears throat> as you know, the meditations is where we find Descartes' famous thought experiment. Having cast doubt on everything that he had come to know up to that point in his life, he arrives at his famous conclusion and one of the most famous statements in all of Western philosophy. So here's Descartes again. So, after considering everything very thoroughly, I must finally conclude that this proposition, I am, I exist, is necessarily true whenever it is conceived in my mind. The cogito thus expresses an indubitable truth. What we are most intimately acquainted with is our own thinking. We do have bodies, indeed, and we do, have and we do experience a whole range of sensations, perceptions, and feelings. But essentially, essentially, we are a thing that thinks, a res cogitans. As he continues, thinking, at least I have discovered it, thought, this alone is inseparable from me, but for how long? For as long as I am thinking. I am, then, in the strict sense, only a thing that thinks. So, <clears throat> what does Descartes aim to demonstrate here? That self-knowledge, of course, is different than other kinds of knowledge. The way I know myself is different from the way I gain knowledge of external reality and the minds of others. Not only are the two ways of knowing different, but in effect, we have privileged epistemic access to our own thoughts. I may be wrong about the contents of my thoughts, argues Descartes, but I cannot be wrong that thoughts is what I'm most intimately acquainted with. That is, when it comes to the routine, at times dramatic, and often comic, unfolding of our own inner lives, we don't just have a front row seat to the theater of our mind. We are directing it as well. Be warned. Improvising as we go. What Descartes' cogito captures here is the so-called, what philosophers call, the immunity to uh, error through misidentification. I may be wrong about the content of my thoughts, but indeed, I cannot be wrong that thoughts is what I'm most intimately acquainted with. Of course, this thought experiment, the, um, with his thought experiment, Descartes doesn't just aim to disabuse us of our false beliefs and our mistaken sense of who and what we are, but to provide us with a method, the so-called skeptical or better known Cartesian uh, method or the Cartesian doubt, by means of which we may be able to build, or rather, rebuild ourselves, as it were, from the ground up. That is, only when we know, we, only when we know, we, um, or we seek to know ourselves methodically, can we arrive 
and indubitable truths about ourselves. So, Cartesian doubt is the second virtue of self-knowledge we have um, arrived at. As effective, however, um, as the Cartesian method might be, and as compelling its response is a reasoned deliberations that give us the certainty of I think, therefore I am, this, there is an equally compelling early modern account of self-knowledge that paints a rather different picture, that of the Scottish philosopher David Hume. As he famously puts it in a treatise on human knowledge, for my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat, cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never catch myself at any time without a perception and never can observe anything but the perception. As you can see, Hume's skepticism, unlike Descartes, extends to include not only the contents, but even the constancy of thought, of the thinking eye. All I find when I look within is a stream of sensations, says Hume, thoughts and desires, a passing scene of kaleidoscopic self-images scattered across the mind's labyrinth. For Hume, all that we experience is a continuous flow of perceptions. The problem, of course, is that we make the mistake of assuming identity between any two thoughts within the stream when, in fact, there is only succession. And so, identify, identity of the thinking eye, like, says Hume, that of repaired ships, rebuilt churches, and republics, is a fiction. But it is not Hume's conception of personal identity uh, and its consequences for self-knowledge that I wish to discuss here, but rather that of the Buddha, to whom this fictionalist or anti-realist uh, view of uh, self-knowledge uh, belongs. Here's the Buddha in uh, the discourse on the no-self characteristic, says the Buddha. Any feeling whatsoever past future or present, internal or external, obvious or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, every feeling is to be seen as it actually is with right discernment. This is not me. This is not myself. This is not what I am. And he says the same thing about perceptions, mental processes, and consciousness. So the rejection of a permanent self as the thinker of thought and the feeler of feelings, the seer of seeings, of course poses a significant challenge for Buddhist philosophy of mind. If there is no permanent agent, and if actions are merely transient events within a stream of causal relations, how is the phenomenal character of conscious experience and the sense of ownership implicit in our first-person agency to be explained? They are, as you might imagine, um, Substantive disagreements about the Buddhists themselves uh, about how the problem of personal identity should be framed and the kind of evidence that should be uh, brought forward. Nevertheless, the no-self picture confronts us with an explanatory gap. What is it 
Why is it, rather, that some causal chains give rise to the emergent phenomenon of consciousness and its implicit sense of self, and others do not? Buddhist philosophers, not surprisingly, have been wrestling with this question for a long time, and the answers, not surprisingly, vary. At the most basic level, the the no-self doctrine provides a justification for treating things like endurance, independence, and self-subsistence as neither desirable nor attainable, but rather simply as what they are, mistaken notions resulting from the habitual tendency we have to construct a substantive identity from a stream of psychophysical phenomena. Now, how exactly a person without a self lives a good and meaningful life and makes progress along the path to awareness is, of course, deliciously puzzling. This claim that our sense of self is a construct that is habitually acquired is not that different, of course, than from Hume's claim that a self is never grasped in the stream of conscious experiences. The problem is that this routine misapprehension of the discrete elements of experience leads to a dualistic perspective. Things appear and are categorized as either objective, thus external, but empirically tractable, or as subjective, thus internal and immediately accessible to consciousness. Puzzled as we are by this dualistic outlook, we cope by constructing a conception of the self as the permanent locus of experience. One attempt to solve this puzzle comes from the inf- one influential 4th century Indian Buddhist philosopher by the name of Vasubandhu. This is what he has to say. By reason of a visual system and visible matter, there arises the visual consciousness. There is not there either an organ uh, that sees or visible matter that that is seen. There is not there any action of seeing nor any agent that sees. There is not only, there is, sorry, this is only a play, there is only a play of cause and effect. By virtue of custom, one speaks metaphorically, of course, of this process, the eye sees and the consciousness discern, but one should not cling, says Vasubandhu, to these metaphors. What does all this mean for self-knowledge? So, Buddha and Hume, of course, maintain pretty much the same thing, that there is no enduring permanent self and that actions are merely transient events within a continuum of causally interconnected states. But what about the sense of self? Can one make make sense of a self-awareness without appealing to the self? One immediate immediate response might be to say that the self uh, in self-awareness is merely a reflexive pronoun, indicating that the type of activity in question, awareness, has a distinctive character. In that sense, self-awareness no more presupposes the existence of a self than do such activities as self-organizing or self-regulating. 
But the types of self-awareness that concern Buddhist contemporary philosophy, Buddhist, Buddhist and contemporary philosophies of mind, are tightly intertwined with our sense of self, our deep sense that we have, or we are, a self. Philosophical accounts of the self of self-awareness concern the particular way in which we are aware of our own subjectivity, of the way in which we are aware of our experiences as they happen to us, right here and now. So, how are we to make sense of the basic sense that right here and now, we are not only aware of what's going on, this public talk you have come here to listen to, to hear, and the same public talk that I have come here to deliver. So, Here's one, use, here's one useful way to, to think about this. For those of you who uh, attended um, my colleague's Sheridan Half talk last week, you may recall that she introduced an important difference um, going back to the French philosopher uh, Jean-Paul Sartre about, our, about how, how should we think about consciousness. The difference between positional and non-positional uh, consciousness. As Sartre famously put it, when I chase after a streetcar or any other vehicle that you're, in the, you're trying to catch, there is positional um, consciousness of the streetcar and non-positional consciousness of uh, itself. So, um, when I reflect on my experience, I'm able to bring together these two aspects of consciousness, but not while in the process of chasing after the streetcar. The wonderful thing, of course, about doing philosophy as I do, cross-culturally, is that a view not unlike Sartre's finds systematic articulation in another influential first-millennium Indian Buddhist philosopher, Dharmakirti. What Dharmakirti gives us is a conception of cognition as self-intimating. This is what he has to say. Awaiting the end of a series of successive cognitions, a person is not aware of any object. Because a cognition cannot be established as cognition when that cognition, which is first personally known, that is our self-awareness, has not itself been established. That is, without being aware in the first place, we really cannot be aware of objects in our environment. And since there is no end to the arising of cognitions, the whole world will be blind and deaf. If there is to be any end to this series of cognitions, then cognition must cognize both itself and the objects simultaneously. In other words, the perception of objects is not established. We really cannot see objects if uh, one is not first personally aware. In proposing this dual aspect view of what it is to be conscious and to be a knower, Dharmakirti anticipates both Sartre and the last philosopher we will be discussing today, uh, Edmund Husserl the founding figure of the European phenomenological tradition. What we have here is a conception of consciousness as self-intimating and self-luminous, and as the condition for the possibility of self-knowledge. What Dharmakiri is doing here, he's simply continuing a tradition going all the way back to the Buddha of using the trope of light and luminosity 
uh, as an analogy for self-knowledge. Recall the Buddha's advice. Be a lamp unto yourself. And so here we are. We have arrived at our third um, virtue of self-knowledge, that of manifesting a profound dimension of mind in equanimity. That poise which allows us to move with relative ease from one moment of consciousness to the next, thoughtfully and without judgment. As the Buddha famously puts it, there remains only equanimity, pure and bright, pliant, malleable, and luminous. Now, you might ask yourself, why this detour through Buddhism? Well, for once, it happens to be one of my areas of expertise. The real reason, however, is that we stand to gain much when we realize that even if a self as ordinarily conceived is nowhere to be found, there is still this bewildering phenomenon called consciousness. Since Buddhist philosophers got to consciousness before we in the West, at least, did, and without the trappings of our deeply entrenched conceptions of the self, they may have a great deal to offer. Now, that consciousness and its place in nature rather than a self, has become the final frontier, what are we to make of the Delphic motto? Let me then introduce our last philosopher of the day, Edmund Husserl, pictured here, the founder of the 20th century philosophical movement known as phenomenology, primary, the primary objective of which uh, is the investigation of phenomena as consciously experienced, free of unexamined preconceptions um, and theories uh, of their causal explanation. So here's Husserl. The Delphic motto, know thyself, has gained a new significance. Positive science, by which Husserl understands the psychology of the late 19th and early 20th century, is a science lost in the world. I must lose the world by epoche in order to regain it by a universal self examination. So Husserl accepts the truth of the Cartesian cogito. I have indeed direct, immediate, incorrigible, apodictic, uh, and necessary knowledge that I exist. But the natural and mind sciences, of course, challenge this Cartesian um, truth. So um, Husserl gives us a new method the so-called epoche, bracketing or suspension of judgment. What is epoche? The epoche is the radical and universal method by which I apprehend myself, says Husserl, purely, as ego and with my own pure conscious life, and by which the entire objective world, and notice that he capitalizes the word objective, um, exists for me. Anything belonging to this world exists for me is accepted by me, in that I experience it, perceive it, remember it, think of it, judge it, value it, and desire it. Everything happens for someone. Every experience is for me. 
The me in this case is really not an explicit I, it's rather an implicit uh, I, but experiences don't happen as if from nowhere and for no one. So, epoche, as Husserl understands it, is simply an attempt to bracket this natural attitude that will cause us to think that our basic common sense intuitions is how the world and ourselves actually are. It, invite, it invites us to take a step back uh, from our involvement in the ongoing flow of life and from our predilection for position taking. So, self knowledge is, I guess, is uh, essential for both theoretical knowledge. Here he offers us a transcendental approach um, and allows us to chart the dimensions of consciousness. Air for practical knowledge, knowing ourselves in this radical ways, argues Husserl, is transformative. Transcendental self-knowledge, furthermore, offers a, an ethical vision for human life and allows us to truly make sense of the, um, of the guiding norms of our, of our culture. So... Um, In Husserl, perhaps the last great systematic thinker in the West, we have a Socratic and Cartesian heritage. Socrates and Descartes proposed, of course, a life of self-scrutiny. We can, I guess Socrates, be ourselves only in relation with our being with others. Husserl, however, reinterprets the Cartesian cogito, the I think, therefore I am, as I think that which is thought. Following in the footsteps of Kant, he basically argues that the I am that follows the I think is in some sense redundant because by virtue of thinking, one already is. So I, argues Husserl, only becomes manifest in thought. So what Husserl offers us is simply a practice of self-awareness. And here is our fourth and final virtue of self-knowledge, the virtue of a radical method of reflection on the unified stream of conscious life, the epoche. So, think of our drives, for instance. Our drives are humanized by the epoche, by being adopted or rejected by us, because they are for us. I'm rarely, for instance, just thirsty for a drink as such. Rather, I long for a specific type of drink, a certain taste. Right now, really, for a glass of wine. That would be great. Our drives emerge into consciousness with a certain prefigured sense configuration. For Husserl, indeed, as for Dharmakirti, our Indian uh, Buddhist philosopher, we encountered earlier, there is a kind of immediate pre-reflective awareness of any experience that is an essential element uh, of consciousness as such. This is also, as my colleague Sheridan Huff reminded us last week, the view of Sartre. So, sound-mindedness, equanimity, Cartesian doubt, and the transcendental suspension of judgments are virtues that demonstrate what it is to know and to be a knower. If Socrates is right, the company of a good friend is essential to this endeavor. 
And as the Buddha would have it us believe, a path of moral and mental cultivation can take us a long way towards achieving this goal. Most importantly, we need, to, we need a safeguard of Cartesian doubts to negotiate the terrain of false belief and the all-important bracketing of our natural attitude to make sure we don't, we don't let ordinary assumptions about our lived experience take the place of careful reflection. So, are you still a skeptic? Or do you now think self-knowledge is a worthwhile pursuit? As it should be clear, this disjunctive too, uh, like the question whether the self is discovered or made, that Professor Huff articulated last week, is slightly misleading. You cannot know without questioning. And a healthy dose of skepticism is essential if we are to know what it means to be a knower. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYRWW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.